have Paula, since we've been doing this neighboring series now for six weeks. I want to pull you on what's easiest for you. So between um, pray, engage, and show. Okay? So who in this room finds praying the easiest thing to do for your neighbors? Raise your hand. Excellent. All right, how about engage? How many people like to throw parties or talk to people? All right. How about show?
oftentimes sharing the gospel is one of the hardest things to do. And so I pray for two things this morning. I pray for those who already believe in Jesus, that you would give um, those a deeper understanding of your story, of what makes it good news, and the passion to be able to share that in the context of relationships. Now I also pray for those in this room who may still be trying to decide whether a relationship with Jesus is something they're interested in. Lord, may this be an opportunity for them to open their hearts to what you have to say. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so about my question today is, what does it, what's it mean to be a Christian? And so I thought it would be interesting to look at the dictionary definition first. And it says this, Christian is commonly defined as an adjective that means of relating to or professing Christianity or its teaching. Having or showing qualities associated with Christians, especially those of decency, kindness, and fairness. And to announce a person who has received Christian baptism or is a believer in Jesus Christ and his teachings. Here's what strikes me about these two definitions. They talk about um, Christians as people that do good things and are nice to other people. And they talk about Christians as people who believe in Jesus. But I wonder if that's all there is to it. I get the sense that there's more to being a Christian to just believing in who this person of Jesus is. And so that's why we have um, also to read Acts 16. That's the place we're going to go this morning to look at the biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm going to retell the story she just read to you. As I said, Paul and Silas were in Philippi. They were basically missionaries. They had been following Jesus. They saw his work. They were transformed by his life and his death and his resurrection. And they were in Philippi to plant churches and to share the good news of Jesus with other people. While they were there, they met a young girl. And this young girl was demon-possessed. One of the things that um, happened to her because she was demon-possessed is she was able to fortune tell. She could see into the future. And so she was owned by several masters who made a lot of money off of her. People wanted to know what was going to happen in the future. And so they would come to this girl, she would tell them, and these masters would make the money. And not only was the, was the demon inside of her fortune telling, the demon also recognized that Paul and Silas were followers of Jesus, which goes back to what I think our definition is us. Even the demons know who Jesus is. So they were following, um, she was following Paul and Silas around and, har- and harassing them. And so Paul at one point decided, enough is enough, and he said to the demon, I command you to come out of this girl. Well, for the girl, she celebrated. She's no longer tortured by this demon. But her masters were pretty upset. Because when that demon left her, so did her ability to tell the fortune of other people. And that means they lost their income. And so they went to the judges and the rulers of that area, and they complained, and they said, you've got to do something about this. This isn't right. And so the judge threw Paul and Silas in jail. They stripped him down. They beat him. They were naked. They were lying on the floor of the jail. And yet they still continued to worship and call out the name of Jesus. In fact, some of the other people in the jail came to know them. Well, there was a jailer that watched over all of the prisoners. And he was, brought, he was on guard one night, and as Paul and Silas were praying, and praying that God would release them, God sent an earthquake that shook the whole jail and broke down all the walls. 
is that if, uh, if the walls came down, the, ch the uh, prisoners must be gone, and that meant he was responsible. So he was going to be held accountable for the prisoners that got away, and he was going to be put to death. So instead of waiting for someone else to, to um, execute him, he took his sword and was just about to shove it into his body when Carlos Lava said, Stop! Stop! You don't need to do that. We're still here. And in that moment, the jailer realized the grace and compassion that Carlos Silas had, that they would remain even though they were free to go. Because they were compassionate about this and cared about this jailer, cared about his life. And so the jailer turned to them and said, what is it I need to do to be saved? And here has become my new favorite verse, because it's the gospel in one sentence. They replied back, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, what I like about that is too often for me, when I'm trying to figure out how to share my faith with somebody, I get information overloaded in my mind. If you grew up in the church, you may have learned the four spiritual laws, or you may have learned um, a different way to present the gospel. You may be worried about what information to give and what to say. This is really simple. This is a one-answer-response, and that's the one that I can remember. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So we want to use that as our model, as our biblical model of what it means to become a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. And to do that, I want to look at two things. The first is I want to look at what does it mean to have that, that title, Lord Jesus Christ? Because we, we need to know who we're believing in first. So we look at that first. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And then second, we're going to come back and we're going to look at what does it mean to believe in him? So let's start with this first piece. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? These three words are not necessarily parts of a name, but they're titles that help us understand the person of Jesus. And what you need to know is we can study about him our entire lives. We can go to church every Sunday. We can read our Bibles through year after year after year. There are aspects of Jesus and God that we're not going to ever get until we get to be with him. But this is going to give us pieces of it. And I think pieces help give us a more holistic view and help us have better conversations. So... Um, let's start off with Lord. So Lord, the word Lord describes who Jesus is. It describes the person of Jesus. It's, the Greek word for Lord is Kyrian. And it's used throughout the Bible to describe God. It describes God as the creator of the whole world. It describes him with his authority. It describes him with his love. In this passage, it shifts over and Jesus' name is being associated with this word Kyrios. Which means that they're connecting Jesus as God, Jesus and God as one. So part of the person of Jesus are these two pieces. You've got this one piece where he's fully man, and you've got this other piece where he's fully God. It's confusing and a bit mind-boggling, but it's similar in a more simplified way to the fact that I'm a mom and a wife, but I'm also a pastor. What I do as a mom and a wife is one thing. What I do as a pastor is another thing, but I'm the same person. It's similar with Jesus. He's one person, but he's fully man and he's fully God. So he has a human nature and he has a divine nature. And I'll talk a little bit about both of those. So let's start with his divine nature. <clears throat> his divine nature means that he's not just like God, but he is God. We see in this passage, John 1, 1 and 14 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Yet in his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus existed before time. He's the creator of the universe. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. He's God. Again, this is part of his divine nature. But he also does something else that points to him as God. He forgives sins. And that, that is more mind-boggling than all the rest. Think about that. If, um, if I step on one of your toes, it's your job to forgive me. If somebody else walked in here and said, oh, I, you know, then yeah, I forgive you. You'd be like, that's a little bit weird. But that's what Jesus did. C.S. Lewis talks about it in his book, Near Christianity, and he articulates it really well. He says this, One part of the plane tends to slip past us as unnoticed because we've heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the plane to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unwrapped and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kind of subscription we should give of this conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitantly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in our offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would only imply that I can only regard as silliness and conceits unrivaled by any other character in history. Jesus' divine nature But he also has a human nature. He was born of, from, a, from a human being. He bled like we bleed. He had emotions. He was angry. He was sad. He was frustrated. He was discouraged. He experienced the life that we experience with the difference of being sinless in the midst of the temptation that he was faced with. But like us, he was faced with that temptation. Hebrews 2.17 says this, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. I think the question that comes to mind is, okay, well, I get it, he's God, but what's the point? Why does he have to become man? And here's an illustration for you. You take your car into the car shop, and your radiator is broken. You don't want them to give you new tires. That's not helping your radiator problem. When you have a broken radiator, you need a new radiator to replace it. We need a human person that can come and take the place for us to bridge the gap between us and God that was created when sin occurred. And that's why it's important that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Fully man is why he's equipped. All right, second one. So that's, that's about his worship. So his, the word Lord talks about him as man and God. That's him as the person. Second one we want to look at is Jesus, and that describes the work he did. Jesus is a human name that means Yahweh saves or Savior. And I think the best way to talk about this aspect of Jesus is to go through the creation account. Uh, you've heard us talk here about creation.
entire rescue restoration is the full story of the gospel. Jesus came to fulfill this work of creating the story. So I'm going to retell you the, the story. This act of creation. When God created the world, he created it in his perfection. He created perfection between us and him. He created perfection, per, per, perfection between us and each other. He created perfection between us and creation. He created the Garden of Eden, and he loved love in the midst of that space. But part of loving and loving well means offering a choice. Anyone in here who's had any sort of relationship with a child, whether it be a parental relationship, a relationship as an uncle and aunt, or a grandparent, or a neighbor, knows that true love offers options. It offers choices. Because otherwise, we're demanding that somebody do the things that we want them to do. God gave us choices. And so in that garden, he said to Adam and Eve, I have this entire garden. You can eat from any tree in this garden except this one over here. Stay away from this one. It's not good for you. It's bad news. It's called the, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam and Eve were content, were content in that for a long time. But then there was this sneaky snake, this deceitful snake, Theophilus, in the garden. And he tried to convince Adam and Eve that they were missing out by not eating from this tree over here. Things like, you know, if you eat from that tree over there, you would know as much as God knows. You know, I know that God says that he's taking care of you, but I'm pretty sure you'd be do a better job of taking care of yourselves. And if you eat from that tree, you'll get to do that. And so Adam and Eve fell for that deceit, and they ate from, they ate from that tree. And in that moment, that's the moment the fall happened. All of creation fell. There was a big, jagged line all of a sudden between every relationship that had been new from. There was a break between our relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. And that meant that death also entered into the world in that moment. See, heaven and hell really have to do with our presence with God. Heaven is an eternity with death. Hell is an eternity away from God. Death was the point that came into the world that said, you know what, now there are these two places, and we're, we're eternally separated from God because of this sin in our life. But that's not the, God, that's not the way God intended it for, for it to be. And so he needed a Savior to come and fix the problem at hand because we couldn't do it for ourselves. We have the, the creation, we have the fall, and then we have the rescue. And the rescue is when God sent Jesus. He sent his person of Jesus, fully man and fully God. And Jesus came, and he lived the life that we lived, but he died the death that we should have died. And he paid the price for our sins. And because he did that, because he died and he rose again three days later, we have the opportunity to be reconnected with God. He has bridged the gap in that relationship. That's what Jesus came to do. That's the story of what it means to be Jesus and the work that he accomplished. But there's one more thing that he came to do, and it really ties into this last word of Christ. Christ means Messiah, and it also refers to him as king. When the resurrection happened, not only did Christ defeat death and evil, but he also established his kingdom here on earth. He came as the king to establish the new heaven and the new earth, and that happened the moment he was resurrected. We oftentimes think of, of, of heaven as this far off distant place. But the Bible tells us that heaven, the, the new creation has started. Christ has, has established.
not hearing us first. We know that intuitively. There's still evil in the world. There's still harmful things that happen, but God is here. He is present. He started his good work. It's not done. It will be finished when he returns again, but we live in kingdom times. And that means that we, as when we follow Jesus, become uh, participants in that kingdom work. He calls us into the excitement of working with him to advance that kingdom. If you've been at Waterstone for a while, you'll know that that's a big part of who we are. Our mission here is to, to um, advance God's kingdom for his glory. And the vision is to be a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. Out of that come our three practices or rhythms. Transform, which is all about us giving you opportunities for God to transform us. Neighbor is about God transforming others. And restore is about God transforming the world. It's all about his kingdom work. And that's what that word Christ means. So we've got this word, Jesus Christ, in these three functions of him. The next thing I want to talk a little bit about is, okay, so we know who this person is. We've got this Lord Jesus Christ person. But what does it mean now to believe in him? So this is all good information. Most of you have probably heard all of it, or maybe you picked out a couple nuggets. Um, but what does it mean to believe in him? Like I said earlier, even the demons believed in the person of Jesus. All of the spiritual Greeks believed that Jesus was a person that existed. So there has to be something different that occurs in that word believe that makes, that makes um, Christianity what it is. So again, dictionary definition in believe is um, to think that something exists. So here's the problem. So I believe this chair exists. But there's something different between me thinking the chair exists and me trusting it enough to sit on it to know that it's going to hold me up. The biblical definition around believe is equal to the word trust. So the question is, how often have we put our faith in the knowledge of who God is and we've forgotten to trust enough to actually sit down in the midst of what that means to follow him? I think there's three ways that we can forget to do that, or three action steps that we can take to actually help us engage in that belief process. I think it's an act of your mind, an act of your heart, and an act of your will. Here's the act of your mind. We have to have the intellectual information about who Jesus is. God gave us the brain for a reason. It's good for us to learn about these things. That's why we spend time giving you information on background between things like who is the Lord, who is Jesus, who is Christ. That's important. We've got to understand first. But that's, that's not far enough. Again, that's knowledge about the existence of the chair. We also need an act of our hearts. In the, um, when Jesus um, ascended into heaven, after he was resurrected and he came back and he appeared to his disciples and he was, was resurrected, um, he ascended into heaven. Um, he left his Holy Spirit behind. So earlier we talked about three aspects, or two aspects of Jesus, that he's fully God and fully man. There's also three aspects of uh, the Trinity. I don't know if just said three over there. That was two. This is three. Three aspects of God in the Trinity. There's God, there's Jesus, and there's the Holy Spirit. Similar illustration, they're all one, but they have unique pieces to them. The Holy Spirit piece is what Jesus left behind when he ascended into heaven. And that's who um, oftentimes prompts us to take the next step. So we've 
talk us information in our minds or how to um, ask the Holy Spirit then to help us believe it in our hearts. It's an unnatural leap sometimes. It's that whole thing that we're never going to understand all the pieces of God. There's a level of trust that's involved in that. And that's that belief in the hearts. But there's one more piece, and I think this sometimes is the hardest. And that's the act of the will. Again, we can know in our heads and know in our hearts, but unless we actually take the step and take action, then we still haven't actually sat down in the chair. So I've got a couple of questions for you. And I just want you to think through. I want all of us to think through. And they're questions that will really get to the heart of the act of our will. The hard question is this. Do you really believe? Do you believe in the existence of the chair? Or do you believe enough that you'll sit on the chair knowing that it will hold you up? You're the only one that can answer that question. It's nobody else's job to do that. You may have gone to church for your entire life and never taken the step to actually sit down on the chair. So the first question is, do you really do you trust it? Do you believe enough to trust? Have you really put your trust for your eternal salvation in the crucified hands of one who died in your place? Are you willing to accept the humiliating fact that you cannot save yourself by anything you do or anything that you are in and of yourself? Are you willing to accept God's solution? Are you willing to accept the grace of Jesus Christ? If you're in this room, several things may be happening. One is, yes, I am there. I believe the chair exists, and I'm sitting on it. I trust God to that extent. Second is, you may say, I'm not sure. I believe in him. I believe all those things you said about him. I believe that he's the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that he was raised from the dead. I believe that. But I'm not sure I trust him enough to really hand my life over to him. Maybe it's because I've had people in my life that have let me down that have said, you know what, trust me and you'll be fine. And I tried to sit in the chair and the chair broke. So I'm not really sure I'm ready to trust in Jesus yet. There may be some of you in this room who are like, I'm still trying to figure out if I really believe that that's a chair. Those are all great places to be in. This is a journey. Everybody's on a path. The goal is to move one step closer to God. So there's no shame in wherever you're at. But I do want to encourage you to take whatever the next step looks like for you. So I want to walk you through something simply. Don't we simply just call the ABCs of asking Christ to take over our lives? Asking Him to be in charge, giving ourselves up. And it's this. Admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Believe in the saving power of Jesus through his death and resurrection, and commit to following and trusting him. I think you can be someone that's followed Jesus your whole life and still pray this as a reminder that I'm committing to following and trusting him. I still think that trust piece is a hard thing to do because we live in a society that we can fix almost every problem that's put in front of us. So I'm going to have us pray for a minute. And I want you to pray from those three places that I just mentioned. If you're in this place and you're believing fully, pray this as a reminder of what you believe in. Or pray for a neighbor or someone in your 
saving me. Help me to grow closer to you each and every day for the rest of my life. 